With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. I'm coming up in hip hop in the 90s. You know what I mean? Like you're at parties that get shot up. Let's just start with that. I don't even know who's performing. I just remember like they fight would break out. Club clears out. Cats are, you know, going to the trunk. And, you know, they might be shooting in the club or in the parking lot. I remember being like under a car, you know, trying to make sure that, you know, I kept myself safe. Got to New York and I was like, man, I lived through L.A. and lived through, you know, 92 to 95 to only meet 95 to 98, which would bring in the East Coast, West Coast drama. You know, we lost Tupac. We lost Biggie. There were lots of, you know, rumors flying around. It wasn't safe. Hip-hop, a symphony of culture, politics, community, and innovation. This is a pretty good analogy for the journey that today's guest, James Andrews, is about to take with us. Mr. Cartoon, Dean Warwick, Whitney Houston, these represent just a small portion of the revolutionary creators that James will introduce us to. And he's able to make those intros because of this contagious charisma and curiosity that actually bleeds into how he talks to us today. Conveniently, it also takes him to the front of the line for everything up and coming. With this advantage, James absorbed the myriad of cultures that came flooding in after the 1970s. From the birth of the internet to the golden age of professional basketball, across California, Utah, Georgia, and New York, amidst revolutions like the Black Panther movement and the Rodney King riots. We're about to get front row seats as it all unfolds. This is Finding Founders. I'm Samuel Donner. And before we get to James, let's start out with the story before our story, with James's grandfather in his flee from Germany. Yeah, so my grandfather was born a Jew in a town in Germany called Breslau. My grandfather married my grandmother and spoke many languages and then came to the U.S. and fought for the U.S. Army and fought against, obviously, the Nazis. So he moved to a very small town in California uh, called Santa Maria, California, and uh, started an accounting firm and became an American. He went from changing his name from Korinsky to Korins, and then he brought the family here on the boat. I really like this backdrop because I think it sets the context of what you're going to do in the future very soon. But now let's go to 1970s, Bay Area, California. The initial years were in Oakland. Is that correct? Yeah, I spent my initial years. Uh, I was born in San Jose. Then I moved to Berkeley. And my mother raised me, single mother. I had gone to Santa Clara University. My mother was involved in the movement, Black Panther Party. I describe my mom as a super woke white woman who raised me as a, as a black man, um, even though technically I'm 53% European, of which I'm 22% Ashkenazi Jew. But uh, I never really had any sort of connection to that part of my family because uh, my mom was very conscious about raising me very consciously, I guess. How did she do that? Um, you know, look, I was in Swahili school. I was in the Free Huey Newton breakfast program. 
I was taught, you know, to really understand the struggle and the struggle for black folks in this country at an early age. What were you spending your time doing? I was really into sports, played basketball, but I was also wayward. You know, I was a pretty bad kid. I was getting into a lot of trouble. I was definitely like a fast little boy, you know, 12 years old, smoking weed. I was, you know. With like that fastness that you're talking about, was your mom aware of that? You know, I was a latchkey kid, as they call it. You know, you come home to an empty house. You know, you're up to your own own devices. Remember once I burned, I burned the house down. <laughs> Wait, what? Yeah, I was like, uh, I was probably seven and uh, I was playing with matches and I ended up burning my whole house down. Or half the house. I was just getting into all kinds of mischief. I think I stole a scooter one time or a moped. You know, I was definitely smoking weed back then at an early age, experimenting with girls. I mean, I was pretty fast. Considering he had smoked weed, stole scooters, and burnt his house down all by the time he was 12, Fast is probably putting it lightly. But I think these actions also signal a stubborn independence. If we look at his past, it's no surprise that James was so stubborn. His family history practically embodied independence. Not only did his grandfather rebuild his whole identity in the face of persecution, but his mother was also exceedingly headstrong. Santa Clara didn't admit women until 1961, and in the year she attended, women made up roughly 10% of the student body and faculty. It must have taken unshakable self-belief to know she belonged in that graduating class. This independence extended to James, not just by example, but also in her decision to root him in his own identity. Rather than playing the colorblind card, she recognized where her experience as a white mother had blind spots. She found communities that could address the unique set of challenges he'd face as a black male in the U.S. James was shown early on that he was on his own path, and given his bold nature, he'd of course take the wheel and accelerate himself down that path. His mom wouldn't impede this independence, but she would send him in a new direction, one that set him side by side our country's most progressive trailblazers. What was that move to Palo Alto like? And, and was there a specific moment or action that spurred that move? I was just constantly arguing with my mom. And I just felt like I could kind of start over fresh in Palo Alto and, you know, be able to live with my aunt. And she lived with her business partner. And I was like, oh, they share the same room. Oh, oh, they share the same room. I didn't know my aunt and her business partner were lovers. So I live with uh, two amazing white women. My friends would come over and be like, who's this white woman? My aunt. Who's this other white woman? My other aunt. Okay, fine. The transition was wild, man. It's like Palo Alto is a very different place than Berkeley and Oakland and Alameda. I really grew and prospered in Palo Alto. Palo Alto, as an academic city, was just a playground for the curious. I had a lot of friends whose parents were engineers. You know, when you, when you grew up in Palo Alto, everybody is sort of involved in some kind of tinkering of, you know, boxes and things called computers. At some point, my aunt bought me a Commodore VIC-20. In eighth grade at Jordan Junior High School in Palo Alto, I was writing code. Really? Yeah. I mean, like we were making games. But yeah, but I think I was in discovery when I was in Palo Alto of a whole set of kids and a whole set of values that I didn't encounter on the East Bay. Palto was just like a treasure trove of like curiosity. 
my aunt owned the equivalent of a branding agency, I guess. She and her business partner, the, her, her lover, they own this business. And yeah, they, they built brochures and pamphlets and kind of, you know, branding material for, for companies. And it was fascinating because being gay, they lived in this sort of like closet world of other gay entrepreneurs. So I, I had fascinating dinners and outings. It seems like your world was like incredibly inclusive just by a factor of like all these different cultures that were filtering in and out of like just your early childhood experience. So in the midst of like this atmosphere in school, what led up to you creating a fake ID business? Oh man. I mean, you know, look, I, I was trying to get to San Francisco to get to the clubs. I, I ran with a little fast crew of, of young guys at Palo Alto too. We were like going to the club, in the clubs in, uh, in San Francisco. And I probably had a fake ID from somebody else. And then I was like, well, what if we just created our own fake IDs and sold them to people? We had a, an enterprising fake ID business. You know, I had a window washing business. I mean, I was certainly thinking about business early on. And, and, I, and I would definitely credit living in the house with my aunts. You know, they were entrepreneurs before it was cool to be an entrepreneur. I've always been hustling and certainly Palo Alto didn't squelch that. It just made it sort of a South Bay version of what I was doing on the East Bay. And while the hustle was nothing new to James, it seemed like there was something novel to discover everywhere he turned in Palo Alto. It was such a different world from the one he had grown up in. While Oakland was 47% black, Palo Alto had a 2% black population and almost double the median household income. Not only did James have to adapt to this drastic culture shift, but now as a resident in one of the most innovative cities in America, he'd accept the most unheard of forward thinking ideas. Take his aunts, for instance. They were leading lives that were widely oppressed in the rest of the United States. Like, it seriously wasn't until 1973 that the APA no longer considered their sexual orientation a psychiatric disorder. They were diverging from the status quo and setting a new one, not only by normalizing their relationship, but also by owning a business. At the time, women only owned 5% of all businesses, and it wasn't until 1988 that women were even allowed to take out business loans without having a male relative co-sign for them. James was living in a petri dish of invention, not just in science and technology, but in ways of culture and lifestyle. With this unbounded diversity, James was prepared to adapt to everything and anything that came his way. But there was one thing that would remain constant. Can you talk about what basketball meant to you growing up? Back then, I played for a team called St. Albert's in Alameda, and we played all the other Oakland church schools. People who are in the NBA now, like I watched them play or played against them. I went to Palo Alto High School and some of my, you know, my best friends were, were basketball players. Their older brothers were basketball players. I think that I loved the idea of building basketball communities. So all my buddies, especially the ones who, you know, weren't selling fake IDs and running around doing crazy things. I found, you know, a gang. I found like a, a family, you know, a very diverse family. You know, my best friend was David Aspiris, who was Filipino, and his brothers were basketball legends at Pali. You know, basketball was something I could play by myself. It was a getaway. I would play until, you know, my hands were just black. Basketball kept us sane, kept us centered. 
you know, music goes along with basketball. When you would play back then, we choose the music that we would come out to. So, you know, you, you want to make sure the DJ is playing the right music. It was fashion, you know, it was definitely like early looks into like making sure that your tearaways look good or how you show up. I started to see early that basketball also meant culture. Overall, it gave James a culture, a place of belonging that he could always come back to. Basketball had a place for everyone. No matter where you came from, how much money you made, what you looked like, you just had to have a love of the game. Not only did it give James a space to belong, but when the rest of his life buzzed around with risks and adventure, basketball offered a space to ground himself. The fashion, the music, the friendships, the etiquette, the lingo, it all orbited around one simple passion that shut out the rest of the world. It taught James how to locate a shared culture amidst all different types of people. And he would need this tool more than ever at his next destination. As you're graduating, going towards... Ba- barely graduating. <laughs> as you're barely graduating. What are you thinking about in terms of like your life? Yeah, I think a couple things stood out during that time period. I mean, I was into girls. I was <laughs> Basically, I was into basketball. Uh, I thought I was a hooper. And some of my uh, party friends, I'll just leave it at that, were Mormon. Doesn't seem like the classic combination of what I think of Mormons. (laughs) Yeah, well, we'll get to that part. You know, I didn't have a lot of options coming out of high school. So I ended up going, I was going to go to Foothill Junior College and my Mormon friends were all going to Provo. And so I ended up like going to Provo, Utah and going to school in, in Provo and living in BYU housing. What was that like? Was the hustle like still, okay, couldn't be suppressed even in, in Mormon country or? Yeah, the hustle was just like girls, definitely. I found that I wasn't that good in basketball. I learned very early on uh, that I wasn't good enough to play even at the junior college level. Once I realized I wasn't going to be able to play at the junior college level, for me, it was just like, okay, let me, you know, try to stay in school. And at that point, it just became having fun, you know, and and literally hanging out in Salt Lake City and Provo. You need to, like, attach identity to something. Where did you search to next for that kind of identity? That's such a good question. When you're one of eight black people in Provo, Utah... You're literally like a rock star. You know what I'm saying? So everybody in the black was an athlete. So we were like gods. Like, literally, like we signed autograph in the mall. Pretty much the only people there were athletes. So people were like, oh my God, who are you? I mean, I didn't have to search very far. You know, we were the hot boys. It was cool. But I look back on it, I was like, it was a bit like being on this pedestal. So it was kind of weird. I mean, people would come up to me and be like, I've never seen one of you before. Oh my God. <laughs> What is your response to that? Like, like, what were you feeling? Uh, it was surreal. It was, I mean, it was like Mormons are the nicest people. And so it didn't feel racist. It felt like being some sort of like fetished animal. I also felt like I was going nowhere fast. When you say nowhere fast, was there a place? I mean, I know you had your sights set on like UCLA, but there, was there like somewhere where you thought you should be? No, I just knew that like being in this environment of being, you know, one of eight black people, a failed basketball player, poser, that isn't my end all be all is like, you know, living in Provo, Utah and and hanging out in clubs. I grew up in Palo Alto, right? I grew up in the eye of Stanford. I had friends that were going to, you know, to great schools. You know, I knew that there was something else out there for me. Utah wasn't his end destination. Basketball wouldn't be his career, yet James wasn't afraid to dive into new experiences. The one thing he'd always know was that his compassionate, people-loving personality 
would build long-lasting, valuable friendships along the way. His year in Provo, Utah was just the starting point on the journey that his fearless vagabond attitude was about to take him on. And in high school, this is, I'm taking on another path, but I had met a guy, his name was David Elliott, and uh, David Elliott was the son of a singer named Dionne Warwick. Because his cousin is Whitney Houston, and I would go to Beverly Hills and would be exposed to, you know, Whitney Houston, Sammy Davis Jr., Patti LaBelle, and like famous celebrities. And I came from the Bay Area. I didn't know any celebrities. And I I realized that L.A. would provide a lot of opportunities for me uh, and just felt like the right thing to do. And if I if I could ever get into UCLA, it'd be a dream come true. And to be able to do that and have sort of a nepotistic access to to someone like uh, Miss Dion uh, was pretty incredible. You know, I really just buckled down and and, uh, and got my grades up, um, got really focused and disciplined. You know, I got into Berkeley, I got into UCLA, and I got into Irvine. At that point, it was a no-brainer. So unfortunately, you know, I had a UCLA life, and then I had an off-campus life. I hung out with like a bunch of broke actors, hung out with this guy whose name is Vince Vaughn, who had become a pretty big star. And, you know, sort of a consistent pattern of of my story, figured out how to get into clubs like Roxbury, which at the time was like the hot club. You know, you bump into Madonna and Prince and, you know, there was sort of like you were either in the celebrity crowd or you were like in someone's house. I mean, there's no Soho house or in between. You were either in the crowd or not. James was absorbed by the Hollywood scene, bumping into and hanging around the same people we now see as legends. It's kind of like a surreal image, rubbing shoulders with someone like Madonna or Prince while pushing your way through a club along the Sunset Strip. It paints a picture of the same starlit landscape sung about by the Eagles in Hotel California, a glamorous, hedonistic otherworld of cigarettes and red carpets. I mean, James had only just been living in Provo, Utah, and now he was having dinner across from Dionne Warwick, Sure, Provo provided James with a small glimmer of fame, but L.A. was something different. This was the kind of fame that people can only dream of, and he was living at the heart of it. He had created a life for himself that was previously unimaginable, one that he never thought he would achieve with his abysmal high school GPA. L.A., however, wasn't just a city of wealth and leisure. If anything, at times, it was the opposite. And during that same time, Tensions between the black community and the L.A. police department were about to boil over. During the uh, Rodney King protests, I ended up, you know, moving in with my then girlfriend. And it was really tense, you know, during the Rodney King riots. We were locked away in our homes, kind of like we are now in the pandemic. I was sort of appalled at the kids that were like looting. I don't know if they're whoever was looting, right? I was like, man, that's not the way to do it. Like, let's, let's, you know, let's talk to these police officers. Let's, you know, let's stand them down and let's, you know, let's fight the power that way. You know, I just remember being pent up, frustrated, angry. It was just felt like a war zone. It felt like shit could pop off and shit's going to pop off. And I wanted to be about that action, but I didn't want to be about the destructive action, but I wanted to make sure my voice was heard. I think a lot of communities of color know exactly what James means, what it's like to experience rampant abuse at the hands of a predominantly white policing system and to want them to experience everything they and the generations of people like them have been subjugated to for centuries. Memories of the 1992 LA riots still cast a dark shadow across the country, a reminder of the devastating effects of a system riddled by racism and injustice. 
The five days of unrest led to 50 deaths and over 2,000 people injured, a memory that was brought back to life during the summer of 2020 when tens of millions of people took to the streets to protest the murder of George Floyd. James, like so many others, was angry and fed up. But seeing his small college town be broken apart wasn't his vision for change. Perhaps through large demonstrations and music, there was another way to be heard. While I was at UCLA, I thought I was going to pursue a career in law. So that's why I was a history major. Back then, there used to be like a used CD store on um, Westwood. It was called Penny Lane. I used to just go sit in that in that Penny Lane store and just talk about music with this guy named Jeff. And Jeff was like just so up on music. And one day, Jeff said, hey, I, I got someone I want you to meet. And this woman came in and uh, she said, I work for Columbia Records and we're hiring interns. And so I ended up getting an internship at Columbia Records. So I got an early taste of the record business while in college interning. And yeah, I ended up getting a job after dropping out, but I got a job at this label called Wild West Records on Melrose. And it was a guy who had gone to UCLA Law School who bought up a bunch of catalog and started a hip hop label. And so in his office, I got to learn everything, shipping, receiving, publishing, you know, kind of everything I wanted. I learned the entire record business in Morris Taft's office in, in Los Angeles. We were part of kind of this L.A. hip-hop scene that was happening, very underground. You know, most of hip-hop was really happening on the East Coast. But there was a real emerging Los Angeles hip-hop community that was sort of blossoming. And, and, and we were a small little label in the beginning of that movement, doing it on Melrose Avenue. Is there like a, a story that like you feel like represents that time? I think the seminal moment actually happened when I would go back to the Bay Area and run into all these basketball dudes, Gary Payton and Jason Kidd. And, you know, Shaq had just released an album. I convinced my boss, Happy Walters, to let me go make a record with NBA players rapping. It was like a crazy concept I thought about while I was grocery shopping. And he was like, I like, you know, I like this idea. Here's $300,000 for a budget. Go make the album. But I was like, I'm going to make the dream record, you know, uh, that really celebrates basketball culture and hip hop. So, yeah, I mean, I think part of being nimble back then, part of what you're referring to is just having the, the ability to just like try things. Did you start to view these artists like their own startup? Because like I, I'm seeing like the cross hairs between like the love of music and then like the business background that you grew up with as a kid. Back then, it was really about the love of, of, of music and the love of, you know, of hip hop coming out of, you know, 90s hip hop into, you know, this period that was, um, you know, Death Row, Snoop Dogg. I saw like what was happening in L.A. as entrepreneurial. Hip-hop was emerging, and James had been fully encompassed by the space. Apart from his celebrity run-ins at Hollywood hotspots and having Dionne Warwick as his second mother, James's initial idea of getting a foot into entertainment began with a law degree. But I get the feeling, at this time, James exuded a contagious love for music, one that carried over shelves of records through Century City Mall and ultimately penetrating the walls of Columbia Records and probably doing so in a way that a law degree may never have been able to do. 
The 90s revealed a new era for music, with West Coast hip-hop amplifying the voices of the Black community and serving as an outlet for the frustration towards a society that had stifled them. Hip-hop took shape in the tailwind of the Reagan era, with the war on drugs devastating Black and Latino communities through long, harsh prison sentences and an uptick in violent policing. The genre, like many other forms of art and music, became a means of expression, a platform to express the areas where things were going wrong. And as the ideas united, so did the creators behind them, forming a new kind of community. These insanely successful and interesting people, like what are you thinking about yourself at this point? This was like hip hop. So this was like a growing, emerging genre. For me, it felt like working on like, you know, the beginnings of skateboarding or surf culture or like things that people relate to that are like emerging. We were in it for the love. It doesn't become, you know, private jets and, you know, uh, and Maybox until a little later. Definitely was humble. It wasn't like glitzy and diamonds. It was like, you know, let's do this. I love this. We all, you know, we felt like we were part of something that was just brand new. How are you measuring the growth of that movement? And where did it move to by like 1998? If you did a study of like the growth of hip hop from 92 to 98, you have to understand like my career went fast and my career is moving at the same trajectory that hip hop is moving at. You know, I, I interned for a guy named Demet Gidry at Columbia Records who ends up taking me, to, you know, and said, hey, Columbia Records is, is, is growing and I'm becoming head of marketing and you should come join me. That sounds super exciting. I know. And I got married at, you know, 23. And oh my goodness. So exciting. <laughs> so a lot was happening. You know, when 95 was a seminal year for hip hop. It's also the year my son was born, Elijah. And it's the year that so many incredible records came out. I felt like I went straight to the NBA. You know what I mean? I skipped, I dropped out of college. I went from making $30,000 a year to like 200000 You know, I had a fancy office and an assistant, and uh, my jump was like really big in those years. So 92 to 98, it's almost hard to even like fathom like who I was in 92 and then who I was in 98. Yeah, he was a popular executive at one of the most highly regarded record labels, but he was also a dad and a husband. And that role carried a different kind of weight. But while James's love of music and the industry served as a key part of his life, it wasn't without conflict. And the 90s would present challenges that would define this era of hip hop. It seems like it was like that rise to executive was like easy. What were some of those really hard moments? I'm coming up in hip hop in the 90s. You know what I mean? Like you're at parties that get shot up. Let's just start with that. Shootings and being in the wrong place at the wrong time were, were commonplace. I had hood spidey sense. I kept myself alive by knowing when to leave the party. What made it rough, like to work in the music business in the 90s meant you had to be street smart. So I think for me, the 90s was, you know, as a young black man working, you know, trying to be in the streets, you know, promoting your artist or being in a studio or being at a party that you're supposed to be at, you know, came with a lot of a lot of things. And I try not to remember all the times, but, you know, I, I can remember parties getting shot up. It's a little bit of PTSD. I'll, I'll, yeah. you, know, I mean, I you don't have to get into it too much if you don't want to. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the one that stands out probably is being at Glam Slam in L.A. And uh, I don't even know who's performing. I just remember, like, the fight would break out. Club clears out. Cats are, you know, going to the trunk. And, you know, there might be shooting in the club or in the parking lot. 
I remember being like under a car, you know, trying to make sure that, you know, I kept myself safe. I don't remember all the stories. I just remember that I got to New York and I was like, man, I lived through L.A. and lived through, you know, 92 to 95 to only meet 95 to 98, which would bring in the East Coast, West Coast drama. Did that industry beef ever come to you? Uh, it didn't come to me per se, but I, you know, without naming any names, you know, we certainly had artists that we had to provide extra protection for. And just to, like really pin it out, like why? You know, we lost Tupac, we lost Biggie. There were lots of, you know, rumors flying around. It wasn't safe for a lot of New York rappers to just be coming out to LA to record. And, you know, there, there it was just a little dicey and we had to um, make it sure- It super taxing. It's ta- it was taxing. Like, you, I feel like you can't really pick sides and you have to be really like diplomatic about like interacting with these people, right? Oh, my side was peace always. I didn't want any of that, any of that drama, any of that funk. I loved hip hop. I loved the music, you know, and I loved the culture. And I loved being a West Coast kid who, you know, got to, you know, live out a dream of like working in this entertainment industry. And, uh, you know, so at that point I had like rappers, but I also had like R&B groups and, and, you know, I had rappers that weren't necessarily threatened. You kind of desensitize yourself to it at a certain level. You know, you just kind of like, you know, having grown up environments that were a little crazy at times, it just became par for the course. The conflict that James was experiencing at this time didn't involve heated exchanges over Twitter. It was much more deadly. And these were James's friends and colleagues. The rivalry that had mounted between East and West Coast framed so much of the 90s hip hop scene, with Tupac and the notorious B.I.G. becoming faces for the tension. For many people, this conflict was something they'd read about in an occasional column or on the front cover of a magazine. But for those directly involved with this community, it was an immediate reality. But with a young family at home, James had to balance the risks of the work and the obligations he had as a dad. And that meant not waiting around when something seemed off. Amidst all this turmoil, however, James had started to wade his way into another scene, one that he would seek to combine with hip hop. When did you make the transition into thinking about leaving this whole world and why? We were on Fuego. I mean, Destiny's Child, uh, Fuji's, Lauren Hill, uh, you know, The Brat, Escape, Maxwell, you know, Love Jones soundtrack, Lauren Hill solo album, Praz, Why? Cl- I mean, it just was like we were massively successful as a Columbia Records Black Music Division. I was, you know, bitten by the technology bug. You were probably as soon as I was leaving LA, as soon as I touched down in New York, I got really connected to the New York online digital scene, which was, you know, emerging. I had every modem, every computer. I was, you know, always at the forefront of technology. Um, a couple things happened for me. I mentored a group of kids who were all black kids who went to Sarah Lawrence and Morehouse and, you know, Yale. I really wanted to provide kind of exposure to my friends in the entertainment industry. And so I built these like programs where I bring A&R people and marketing people to Montclair, New Jersey, and they would talk to my kids. The goal was to build a kids run record label. So teaching them entrepreneurship through this idea of building a record label. The record label, I never really launched it, but the kids were uh, going back to their colleges. And I remember there was a woman that went to Stanford She said to me, she said, I have all the email addresses of every black student at Stanford's campus. I was like, amazing. So I started doing these like test kitchen things where I would send all the black students early CDs of my artists. 
they would bring me back all this information and I would like tell my boss like, hey, you know, we did this trial thing and I ran a test case of their video. And yeah, so I ended up turning that into an email newsletter where I would communicate between these kids and my friends in the, in the industry. So my universe in, in New York City was like people from the publishing business, you know, magazines, the NBA, Reebok, Nike, you know, uh, kind of a smorgasbord of culture industries. I was meeting all kinds of fascinating people on the island of Manhattan, and I knew many people in many different verticals. And so I put together a newsletter where it was called Soul Purpose, where I would connect all of these interesting executives. But I ultimately wanted to get my young kids from Montclair internships. James was acting as a bridge between bright young hopefuls and the industry in which he had found success. He was only 26, but he'd carved out a unique space within hip hop and was now looking for ways to connect people who may not have stumbled into this opportunity otherwise. It was a reflection of what Jeff from the CD store in Westwood did for him all those years before. And now James sought to lend a similar hand to others and give back to the community that had provided so much for him. This newsletter was a combination of passions and it had the potential to create a lasting positive impact on a scale he hadn't imagined. How are you looking at this as it's scaling? And what were like the numbers looking like as it grew? It became very popular. People were like, hey, I saw your newsletter. People would stop me like, hey, that was really cool what you wrote. So it was basically a blog before blogs. And so, yeah, we grew, we grew really quickly. I grew from like the 300 business card email addresses on the business cards into, you know, uh, what would ultimately become 25,000 email addresses. And that was like 1999, 2000. So that was like... 97, 98. Really, really early. Really early, really early. 98, 99. And all this dot-com money started to flow into New York City. And I ended up selling it, got in a bidding war between a couple of other companies. And I sold it to a dot-com uh, that was called Urban Box Office. How did you decide to sell and why? I ended up going to UBO because there was a man named George Jackson who was there, who was a filmmaker. Uh, and he and a guy named Frank Cooper and a guy named Adam Kidron built this company called Urban Box Office. And I just was like, someone's going to pay me six figures for this newsletter that like I was doing at night by myself, you know, until the wee hours of the night. What did it feel like to have that like passion project that was like validated you know it felt really good honestly it felt like wow this is like everybody kind of doubted me i mean you know my own wife was like what are you doing what is this thing you're working on you know i've always done really well when people doubt me why because i i like having the ball in my hands you know when you're down i like to be able to prove them wrong I'm, i'm made up of immigrant hustle i have ashkenazi and slavery you know in my blood and um I'm not the dude you bet against. You know what I'm saying? I'm the dude you want on your team when, when you're down by 10, you know, because I'm, I'm full on. But I've always been in positions where, like, again, I was sort of counted out, underestimated, let's call it. Um, and I just play well in that space. And we were building this company. You know, we raised, went from raising 1 million to 12 million. And then selling this thing that I built uh, was pretty incredible. And, and being around, you know, Clarence Avant, 
being around George Jackson. You know, these were like bosses, you know what I'm saying? Like, just put it in context. So this is big, this is high cotton. You know, what do you do with all that access, that cultural access, that social capital? So not only did we have capital capital, but we had social capital. And I think I would say that what I really took away from that is what can you do with social capital? It kind of goes back to like wanting your voice to be heard during like, yeah, those, like, like totally. the Rodney King protests. You want to see what you can do to influence the world positively, right? That's right. Yeah. And, and, and the internet became that highway to that. And it was like, wow, like we can build something on the internet? You know, let's go big. So when did things start to turn? We had zero revenue. A UBO, we were being outed in the media. It was very media heavy. It's my first taste of like media scrutiny. It personally, you know, like even social media scrutiny, there was like chat forums that were saying things about me. What were they saying? Uh, just like, you know, are, are we really worth it? This is a joke. But yeah, I mean, it just was a really challenging time. Then when George died, it just broke my heart. I mean, it, it is, um, it's hard to even talk about it sometimes without tearing up. You know, he, he meant he meant a lot to me. He was a he was an important man in my career, and he uh, when he died, it just was like wow. It just took took a lot of the, the steam and a lot of the, the wind out of, out of us. And uh, I, you know, showed up for work, got a notice. I should say that UBO was shutting down, and my website's sole purpose was going into bankruptcy court. And that was kind of that was the end. It seems like UBO lost their trajectory, but let's go back to the start. The Urban Box Office Network started just like a lot of great ideas on a restaurant napkin. I imagine them around this dinner table at the Mayflower Hotel, three founders, George Jackson, Frank Cooper, and Adam Kidron, discussing how they could help urban minorities. It was the start of something big. And for Jackson, who was leading the charge, these problems weren't for it. He had dedicated himself to creating minority communities. Prior to UBO, Jackson produced and directed movies aimed at telling black stories, and he was the president of Motown Records. This all led to what he was building with UBO. George envisioned this on-the-web urban empire that would create channels of success for undermined populations, and people were getting excited. But his initial vision died with him in 2000. UBO began to crumble under weak infrastructure. There was large employee cuts, massive system shutdowns, and it was unclear exactly where the money was going. The thing is, James still believed in that vision George wanted, to build minority communities. But he realized UBO wasn't the space to do it. So to continue to build these communities, he had to start over. Yeah, uh, well, Atlanta, Georgia is where my in-laws lived, and it was just a, a really good place for us to kind of start over um, and to start over in life, you know? Um, you know, we were certainly struggling financially, uh, and when I first moved to Atlanta, actually, I worked at Crunch, the gym. So I had gone from making $200,000 a year to, like, working, signing up people for the gym. I must have been, like, so hard because, like, you, oh, you like, because also, like, yeah. I mean, you said, like, your whole life you're, you're kind of used to the champagne taste, right? And, like, this is, yeah, like, yeah. this seems like the first time that, that maybe that champagne taste couldn't be indulged. Yeah. Oh, no, it definitely wasn't being indulged. Um, I had a car they were about to repossess. Um, yeah, I was, you know, I was... Um, it was it humbled me. I mean, I mean, you see, you know, celebrities like coming into 
crunch gym, like, what are you doing working here? Atlanta also ends up, you know, being a great place. I call it the witness protection program for the former record executive. You know, it's like, it's like a great place to like rebuild yourself. But I didn't really want to work in the music industry. I kind of was like, I feel like I had done it. And I felt like it couldn't get any higher than what I did at Columbia Records. Like it literally was, you know, Mariah Carey, Jermaine Dupree, Destiny Child, Fuji. I mean, it was just like hit after hit after hit. And I thought that also being a record executive diminished my marketing background because most people, when I would sit across from them in a job interview, they'd be so enamored that I knew, you know, Beyonce and less interested in like how I manage P&L. And I felt like I didn't want to be delegitimized as a marketer and I wanted to be taken seriously. And I thought if I went into the advertising business, that that would legitimize, quote unquote, my, my career. James needing to find a home is such an integral part of his journey. He traveled the world. He worked with the biggest names in entertainment. He was at the height of his career, but Atlanta called him. He needed to connect back with his community and himself. His story kind of reminds me in one of those movies where the main character does whatever it takes to get to the top. But once they get there, they don't recognize themselves. And it's almost like James had this moment. He made it to the top. He was doing exactly what he wanted to do. He was amplifying minority communities, traveling the world and making amazing professional connections. But his initial vision wasn't for the big players at the top. The community he had always wanted to build was for the high school basketball players and the bedroom artists. And so he had to go to Atlanta to reconnect with this initial vision and reevaluate how he'd achieve it. And that's where we pick up once again. What was the moment where you thought, okay, I need to do this. You know, I need to take another stab at founding something. I built a division within Ketchum, which is uh, Omnicom. They allowed me to um, kind of, you know, sell social media services, um, which effectively became like an early practice area within you know, top three PR firms in the world. It just gave me the bug again. It, you know, it tapped into my, you know, my immigrant Ashkenazi black hustle. Um, and I wanted to do something new. And I, and Atlanta also felt like a safe place to launch a business. Uh, my kids went to a really great private school and, you know, using the parents that were at that school, many of whom worked at CDC and CNN and um, other places, uh, we were able to build an early stage social media agency and uh, specialized really in data analytics and, and with sort of an emphasis on TV. So yeah, I just, I loved, you know, social media because it was a connected tissue, but it also gave me an extension as I travel globally to connect with people before I even got to the city. You are connecting all these different places, like connecting with people from all these different places around the world. Um, and it seems like social people is doing really well. So you gear up in 2014 to sell it. Why? You know, from an operations standpoint, I'm a great business developer, a great creative, a great strategist, an operator I am not. Um, so I, you know, I was terrible at the things that like I needed someone to come in and support. But I also was at the end of like being the social media quote unquote guru. I was like, I, I, I am a communications expert. I'm not just a social media guru. It's a consistent theme with me. I never really, really want to be called just a music executive. So I go into advertising. I didn't want to just be called social media expert. So, so I go into venture capital. Like, I don't know. I, I think today's business allows me to kind of weave all those things together, though. Um, but I think back then I was really fighting those kind of like, you know, those, those pigeonholed things. 
Yeah, I want to actually go up to today's businesses because uh, it feels like there's like, I mean, obviously you've done a ton of stuff in between that, but um, let's let's go to Authenticated now. Yeah, well, I'm an entrepreneur's entrepreneur, so I'm not afraid of starting businesses. And uh, I really understand entrepreneurs. You know, I, I'm, I'm the grandson of an entrepreneur. I'm the, I started, you know, surrounding myself with entrepreneurs. You know, I met a guy named Travis who started a company called Uber. Uh, I met a guy named Neil who started a company called Warby Parker. So I certainly knew that I understood, you know, the mindset of entrepreneurs because I grew up in that mindset. And you know, found myself in these, you know, dinners where I'm sitting down, you know, uh, learning from some really great venture capitalists who are coming from Silicon Valley and uh, educating celebrities, being kind of the connector in that thing and realizing, wow, hmm, this is really kind of, you know, a world I could probably play in and really understand more. So yeah, the, the, the natural course into authenticated ventures was certainly a life, a life, you know, portfolios worth, worth of work where today I can look at deals, I can look at my network, my social network, I can look at community building. And so when you put that together in a thesis, I think it makes a, a really good um, triumphant of business that spans you know, advisory work, content creation, and, and investments. With Authenticated, like you have this history of being able to work really closely with a lot of really interesting people and celebrities, and you've worked with like Kanye Center Service, and also you did the City Tour with Culture and Code, and it seems like you've been really focused on how do I build a sustainable community and a sustainable culture with like this this venture. What would you say that that community is, and how has that community led you to the Audio Collective? The Audio Collective is a community on Clubhouse. And um, we came together as a community um, to share best practices, to, you know, to, to create opportunities with brands. You know, so community is the center of, of, of what I believe in. And so cities become an important thing for me because I think cities are where communities come together in, in the center, in the town halls and the centers of, of cities are where the magic comes together. So I built a dinner series called Culture and Code. Um, and we would bring entrepreneurs and VCs to cities that are not Palo Alto, not Austin, that I thought had a story to tell. So we built this tour called Culture and Code. And, you know, three years ago, started taking all my fancy friends out uh, to, to see cities. Uh, and then we would go to the hood and we bring all my fancy friends from Uber and Spotify and whatever, all the companies, all the VCs and show them a part of Miami they've never seen before, you know, and, show, and bring them face to face with seventh and eighth graders who are, who are incredible, who are, you know, who are entrepreneurs, but don't, didn't go to Stanford, didn't go to UCLA, you know, didn't have access. And so that was really at the heart of what the tour was about. It was a 72 hour experience. The Authenticated brings it all together. So when you come in the Authenticated, it's, it's uh, we call it, the, it's rappers and royalty. My lifestyle is kind of rappers to royalty and, and our network is as diverse as you can get as an image of, of rappers and royals. And when we do dinners, by the way, it's a princess in one corner and it's a guy who's locked up 18 years for a nonviolent drug offense in the other corner. And it's, it's all of us having conversations about real shit. These conversations are necessary to heal our communities. In the wake of the Trump administration, the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement, and the continued fight against systematic oppression, it is imperative to spread the ideas contained within these conversations. And it seems like James has the megaphone he needs in social media. James's weekly hour-long clubhouse conversations, Culture and Code, 
are dedicated to navigating the difficult world of entrepreneurship in underrepresented communities. And so far, he's been pretty successful in his team's goal to share experiences and reach new audiences. You've accomplished so much. You're going from Oakland to Palo Alto to UCLA to founding multiple companies, losing it all, and then coming back. What advice would you give your younger self or someone maybe in that uh, similar situation? Be bold, take take risks, and 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 I would say build on every bold risk you take. I feel like I, you know the opiate has been for me, has been risk. You know I, I get high off of it. I'm you know I love you know uh, risk taking. You know um, and, and I'm very comfortable with risk taking, and I love betting on myself. You know get comfortable betting on yourself and and you know miss some jumpers and you know think think you're the cool basketball kid. <laughs> That's cool. And I think that the 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 last part is just be kind. Be good to people. Be someone that, you know, is, is, is loyal. Be someone that's a good friend. You know, um, I think that lasts more than any of the money I made. Um, I'm a good friend to a lot of people. You know, uh, there's a line in that, in that documentary, uh, uh, Black Godfather, that I want you to, to, to watch, uh, which is that he says, Clarence Avon says, you know, I don't have problems. I have friends. You know, and, and that's how I feel. Like I don't, I don't have like I don't have those those issues because I have an incredible network that runs, you know, from Camarillo to Abu Dhabi, you know, and Oakland to Jerusalem. Throughout his life, James has used one word as his north star: community. It's what he relied on in Oakland. When his peers were getting into trouble and he was at risk of being sucked into that life, he found basketball. And in basketball, he found a community that protected him from the perils of growing up maybe a bit too fast. In the music scene, he connected with some of the biggest artists in the world and became a social hub for this echelon of talent. In the startup world, he created a community for upcoming artists by giving them a helping hand to enter into the music business. And now, today, with Culture and Code, he opens doors for underrepresented communities. Community is at the root of all his ventures. And I think we can learn something here from James. We can learn that in any endeavor, there are people that can build us up. There are people that can help us achieve a vision. There are people that can help us start a movement. There are communities everywhere. There's this limitless energy in both our friends, the strangers online, and the strangers we walk past every day. There's nothing stopping you from tapping into that limitless energy. So if there's one piece of advice that I feel like I've pulled from James's story, it's go ahead and introduce yourself. See you next week. Thanks so much for listening. And if you haven't already, make sure to subscribe and rate us five stars. If you liked the episode or had a question or just wanted to chat, DM me on Instagram at Finding Founders Podcast. Finding Founders is created, produced, and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Our editing team lead is Adrian Tapia with support from Sophia Donner, Matt Fernandez, and Maura Lynch. Our script writing team lead is Elizabeth Bowen with support from Elise Caldwell, Kylie McCreary, and Beatrice Phillips. Our outreach team leads are Jessica Lynn and Ankita Nambiar with support from Lisa Lay, Marie Vaughn, Melody Sabani, and Sarah Hobson. 
Our design team lead is Shruti Ramanan with support from Eli Lawrence, Melanie Mock, and Tiff Dang. See you next week. Thank you.